Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. I'm excited for my guest tonight, and before we get to him, three quick requests. First, subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. It's the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of all your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download all of them and take up all the space on your phone. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Secondly, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you hear and you want others to hear it too, a kind rating on iTunes is the best way to boost us in the rankings and search. So, I kindly encourage that. Finally, a reminder, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold. It is a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those who shoot and edit their own stories. It's getting picked up by college classes. It's great for young journalists. Again, that's The Solo Video Journalist on sale now. All right, first podcast of the year, and I was inspired to reach out to this episode's guest, because of a podcast I heard late last year. I'm a big fan of Gimlet Media in general and the startup podcast in particular, but this was different. A five-part startup series that followed an annual startup bus competition on a five-day swing from New York to New Orleans. The reporter got on the bus with 22 participants and somehow found a coherent story to tell one day at a time. I'm thrilled to have him as my guest, Gimlet Media senior producer Eric Mendel. Welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is great. So before we dive in, Eric, you heard my description of what you did on this raucous five-day experience called the Startup Bus. Anything I left out or any background that you'd want to mention? Uh, no, I feel like you did a, a great <laughs> job. It's like pretty straightforward. It's a bunch of people on a bus trying to start companies and... Uh, uh, and and chaos ensues. So, <laughs> How did you learn about this? Um, people ask me that a lot after I finish this story. You know, the, the funny thing is, um, uh, and this is what happens with a lot of stories, is like you kind of start with a, uh, like a very crazy idea of the story you want to do, and then you go searching for a version of it out in the world that might already exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should I should say also um, as an audio guy I'm very embarrassed. My dog is in the background playing with a toy, so you might hear a little <laughs> bit of that. <laughs> that is okay. I had a guest one time do it on his porch, and we heard uh, crickets the whole time, and it was really actually very peaceful and beautiful. So oh, feel good, free. good, good. Um, well, uh, yeah. So anyway, I had this idea uh, like a year ago. I guess it was maybe it wasn't a year ago. It was about eight months ago now that I um I wanted to do a story where I would try to get funding for a company that I would create in 48 hours. It was just like, I don't know, what's like the craziest idea I could come up with in 48 hours and see if somebody would actually give me money to do it. Um, and I was talking with my editor, um, his, his guy named Jorge, and uh, he he was like, that's 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 an okay idea, but you know, there's like these hackathon things like exist in the real world. Why don't you just like maybe go and see if something like that already exists? And, uh, and, and maybe there's a version of it that you might be interested in. So I, I went on like sort of a deep dive on hackathons for like two days and just like, saw whatever I could find that was coming up in the next few weeks that that might be interesting. And, and I mean, there's, there's hackathons all over the place. It's a real culture. There's hackathons every weekend in New York city and San Francisco, a lot of major cities just have hackathons all the time. And then I saw the, the listing for startup bus, uh, 
which on the very face of it was just seemed like a totally nutty idea and um <laughs> and not honestly that far from the thing I had been imagining from the beginning so um yeah so it's I feel like with like a lot of stories yeah it's like a crazy idea and you just want to look for a very real version of it in the world and that's that's sort of what happened with the bus were you uh, immediately deflated by the fact that you would not be participating in the competition? I was immediately relieved I would not be participating. <laughs> um, early on, the, the startup bus, uh, the, the organizers had asked if I wanted to just take part in the competition and record myself as a participant. And I have absolutely no skills to offer anybody who's trying to start a tech company. That is like not, <laughs> not my bag. But I'm happy to stand there with a microphone while you start your tech company. So it's a... Uh, it put me back in my comfort zone in a way, which was nice. So I really wanted to get into the process of reporting this, especially while you were on the bus, because I think it can apply across various media. For example, I work in TV. Very often I arrive at scenes with plenty of people and I need to quickly figure out, okay, who are the people who are going to be the most memorable uh, characters, for lack of a better word? Who should I focus on in my story? Who is, uh, for whom is this experience the most memorable? And I've got to make snap decisions. You got on a bus with 22 strangers and had to build relationships, get interviews, and figure out some storylines pretty quickly. And it may seem like, oh, wow, he had all day to do this and, and everything. But it's not that easy, especially when, you know, it's limited time and people are trying to do their own thing on this bus. So... What was your strategy going in, and, and how did you try to assess who you were going to really make your main characters for this series? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of the pre-interview to the extent that it's available. I think a lot of people like to do quick pre-interviews or none at all and just assume they can they can find the characters on the fly. Um, luckily, I was able to get the, the contact information for most of the people who were on the bus about four or five days before the, the trip started. And so me and then um, another producer, uh, Alvin uh, Milath, he, we, we made a bunch of phone calls and just sort of like, wrote to everyone on the bus and said, Hey, can we just have 20 minutes or so this week and, and have a quick chat and, and, you know, kind of suss out like, you know, who's here for what reasons, uh, you know, what are they hoping to accomplish on the bus? And you, you do a little bit of pre-work to figure out like who are the characters that you're naturally drawn to by their interests, the things that they're hoping to do while they're on the bus. Um, and so, so we did, we did that. We probably called about 15 of the, of the writers, uh, in advance and, and that gave like a, a little bit of a sense of people who might be interesting. Um, but, you know, you can only learn so much from that, those phone calls. And I feel like uh, it can help rule people in in terms of who you're interested in. But it doesn't always rule people out. Like I, I thought when I got on the bus that there were people who, even after the phone conversations, I wasn't so sure if, if we'd have a lot to talk about. Once we got on the bus, I found they were interesting. So, um when I got on the bus, sort of the, the process of determining who is going to be someone you focus on, I think there are a couple different things that you're looking for. Someone who you know, can articulate what they're thinking pretty clearly. Someone who's emotionally vulnerable and willing to be pretty open with you. I think from the start, it's pretty easy to tell whether or not people are like on board with being recorded um, and on board with talking to a reporter. Some people, like they just don't care. They'll talk to anyone. I don't know why people like that exist. It's a it's a gift to us journalists. <laughs> I would never talk to a journalist the way some people talk to me. But um, but it's like an amazing thing that they're they're willing to trust people that much. So that's that's one thing you're looking for is, is um, people who are just like emotionally vulnerable. And then um, 
another part of it is like, you know, with me, it's just like, uh, I just like look for people that I want to hang out with. And I just trust that like, if you have a good sense of like, who's listening to your thing or who's watching your thing, um, you know, I think like a very big portion of the job is just understanding what's interesting. And if you have a gut feeling of like, this is a person I'd just be interested to hang out with for five days, um, then you just hang out with them for five days. You know, like a big part of the job is just doing what seems the most fun and natural. I think that is such a good piece of advice. And again, across media too, because so often I think we almost come in with, with an idea. And you mentioned that you had an idea for what you wanted this project to be. And then it became something different. But I think a lot of times as reporters, we go onto a scene thinking we know what the story is going to be. And that closes us off to what the story truly is. And a lot of that simply comes from keeping your eyes open, keeping your ears open, and finding those moments or recognizing those moments when they happen. And obviously, you were on a bus with 22 people trying to form a business in three days. Uh, those moments were going to come pretty quickly. And not only that, but you also, you know, you could pre-interview individuals, but at some point on day one, they all got to form their own teams. And that creates a whole new dynamic that you couldn't anticipate yeah. necessarily beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like one of the, what you're saying about letting the story happen and, and not getting too caught up in the idea you have for the story. I mean, Startup Bus, it, it turned out to be a five-part series, but going in, I thought it was going to be one episode. I thought it was going to be 30 minutes, give or take. I'd follow one person who was interested in having a personal journey. Um, but by the end of the second day, I remember, like, I was just sort of plotting out the tape I had gathered and the moments I had gathered. And I was writing back to my, my, my senior producer back in New York. And I was just like, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of interesting people. I think this thing can hold out. Um, you know, there's so much was changing so fast and so many people were going through so many different experiences that it was just like, Oh, if we like start attacking this story today on day two, as if it's going to be a five part series, I think we might be able to pull it off. So it was a little bit of a, like an, 90 degree turn in the middle of the week. And, um, and yeah, a lot of that was determined by like the thing you're saying, like just the shifting dynamics, you know, that makes for an interesting story. You mentioned quite a few times during the series, how it felt like a reality show. Was that something that occurred to you midway through, or did you have an idea that that might be what it was like when you got on? I remember reading about it and like one of the first compare, when I pitched the story to the rest of the startup team, I said, it's a little bit like that TV show road rules. Um, but instead of like, comp like, like doing like high wire acts as their challenges, they're doing startup pitches as their, you know? And so, yeah. um, I remember the idea occurred to me early on that that's what this felt like. I don't think I planned to lean into it quite so literally, um, initially, but then as I was writing the story after gathering the tape, like so much of the, the competition itself is about narratives. You know, it's about the stories that the people tell themselves about who they are, the stories that they tell about who their companies are, and the stories that the organizers are, are telling about the competition and how it's supposed to work. There's just so many, like, threaded narratives um, in Startup Bus in a way that really resembles a reality show. There's so many different layers of what's going on when you watch something like The Bachelor or... Uh, or the amazing race and, um, and being able to like distill that, it just, it felt like a pretty good metaphor for, for what was happening. And you, you just said something that I thought is, I, I just found to be a really great little nugget for reporters out there, which is that when you 
talk with someone, when you are profiling someone or when you are interviewing someone from a story, you need to be aware of what that person thinks the story is and from the objective step-back perspective, what you feel the story is and then how those things either mesh together or uh, you know have friction with each other. And I think you just did such a great job of that over the five-part series in, you know, kind of letting letting the people be themselves, but then also showing this objective plot as it went through over the five days. Um, you produced 30 minutes of show, roughly, for each day of the competition, so that's 150 minutes, give or take, total. How much raw audio did you possibly <laughs> record to narrow it down and winnow it down to that amount of time. Yeah, I think we came, I think I came back with including like the, inter- the interviews before and I did a couple follow-up interviews with people at the end. Um, I think it was like floating around 50 hours of tape, give or take. Woo! Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> it wasn't like quite the most I've ever dealt with, but it was like, it was pretty close. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How did you, how did you winnow all that down? Um, so it was like sort of a, this is like kind of an, uh, I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to like teach a little workshop on this because it was, it was like kind of an interesting process. So, uh, we used this software called pro tools, which this, this part might not be that interesting, but I'll like, I'll try to speed through it. But we have this software where we basically can divide each person and all of their recordings up in, into different tracks. It sort of looks like, um, uh, like it's very stereotypical music producing software, right? Like you have your guitar track, your piano track, your drum track. Instead, I had my Rebecca track and my Colleen track and my Michael track. And um, mm-hmm. and so what I did was basically just laid everything up in chronological order. And I um, and from there uh, went through and divided it up into different characters and into different teams. And over the course of the week, I had been taking notes, field notes, which is a thing I know print reporters are particularly good at. Uh, and I think uh, multimedia reporters are, are sometimes very bad at is taking field notes because you we feel like have you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you and you feel like you have it recorded so you can always go back and listen. But um, there are things that like observations and things that don't get connected that don't come through in the audio or even in the video sometimes. And so because the camera's pointed in the wrong direction or something. Um, so I took field notes throughout the week and I would like maybe two or three times a day, stop and pause and like pull up my little Apple notes app and like, just like type in the things I was excited about and that I had recorded and I knew I wanted to go back to. So I'd have everything laid up. I knew like the basic moments I wanted. And then I went through and re-listened to every minute of tape again. I did. I took like three weeks and like went through and I was taking notes all along the way and I was labeling the tape and 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 pulling we we call them selects it's like our favorite moments of tape and pulling those and and making notes of what those were along the way um so it's like a lot of work you know i'm like a big (laughs) fan of going back through and like re-listening to all your tape most of the time transcribing all of your tape again i didn't do it with this because there was so much like ambient noise from the road and people shouting that it would have been a nightmare but um but yeah it's like it's a it's a it's a pretty slow process (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's worth noting that I think the competition took place in August, July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the um, end of July, early August. Yeah. And then the actual Startup Bus series that you produced aired in December. In De- um, I don't know if all four months were spent working on that, but I would imagine a large chunk of that, that time was. Yeah, almost all of it was. Yeah, I think the oh, first wow. couple months back was like sort of halftime on Startup Bus. Um, and, and I was also working on some other projects. But then those last uh, probably 
yeah, three months or so was it was all stuff startup bus all the time. Yeah. Wow. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Eric Mennel, senior producer for Gimlet Media and principal reporter for a five-part series called Startup Bus for the Startup Podcast. Uh, Eric, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, how the when or maybe when the reporter sort of bleeds into the story. And day four, you wound up affecting the competition, or at least you didn't seem to be entirely sure whether or not you did. Um, talk about what happened and kind of break down the surreality of that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's this moment on, on on Thursday in the fourth episode of the series where uh, the teams have all pitched their companies to the judges for the first time, and the judges have gone into a back room to make their decision. And I, I'd asked them if I could record that, and they said no, which made perfect sense. But then a few minutes later, someone comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, would you like to come listen in on the end of the conversation? And I'm like, great, yeah, totally. So I walk in the room, and and basically what they tell me is they're going to reenact the end of the conversation that they've just had. They've already made their decision. They know which teams are going forward, and they're going to reenact the conversation for me. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's like not exactly what I was hoping for, but fine, whatever, we'll we'll roll with it. Um, And so they start reenacting the conversation, and uh, what I sort of realized in that moment, uh, spoiler alert, is that none of the teams that I had been covering on the bus from New York uh, to New Orleans, uh, none of them were moving forward. Uh, but what happens then is like they start rehashing the conversation on their own. They sort of fall back into the conversation and, and wind up changing their minds. And it, and it sort of changes the course of the, the story in a pretty dramatic way. Um, so that was strange. It was a strange thing to have happen. <laughs> I remember walking out and being a little shell shocked, like, "What? What am I supposed?" To? I didn't. I didn't entirely know how to feel about it at first. Um, I was quiet. I don't feel like I intentionally intervened in anything, but there was certainly this element of like the uh, the observer effect, right? You you were you were watching the thing. In fact, changes what happens, um, which I think happens in a lot of journalism, not always quite so deliberately as this as this seems to have happened. Uh, but yeah, it was like a real, it was like both exciting in a way that was like, oh, that was like a weird thing. That's going to be a weird part of the story, but also complicates the story in a way I, I, at the time was like, I don't know what to do about this, but I, I know I'm going to have time to figure it out. So I will like set it aside in my brain for now and figure it out when I need to figure out what it means. Yeah. And, and there really wasn't much you could do. I mean, it certainly wouldn't have been appropriate for you to interfere during those re-deliberations that the judges were doing and then the way you report it in the series is is essentially what you just did now where you really explain the process you talk about your reluctance to even record the staged deliberations mm-hmm. and then you talk about you you basically lay it out there and talk about your own kind of you know not misgivings but your own just uh ambivalent feelings about how it all went down. So I, I don't know that there's a whole lot as a reporter that you can really do in that situation, but I'm sure you were noticing throughout the week how your presence changed the dynamic of what was going on at any given time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing you can do is like learn from the experience and change what you do moving forward. <laughs> so I did know that like, all right, I have a scene in the judge's room. I don't think it's going to be helpful for me to be back in the judges' room again. So I'm not even going to ask going forward, even for like the finals or whatever. It's like the biggest judge. Like I don't, I don't even, I don't need to be in there. We know what happens, and like, 
So I feel like there are ways in which you can like learn from it. Uh, that that's probably something to take away. Um, in terms of other ways that my presence affected the story, uh, yeah, I think I was like, you know, the, the thing I compared the story most to actually was I got to cover the 2012 Republican convention, um, the national convention for the Republican party in, in Tampa, Florida in 2012. And my job was to cover protesters. Uh, and so they built like a tent city outside the convention center. And like, I just like went and like hung out with them for like a week while they were in the tent city and they'd like do protests all around town and like all sorts of actions. They would you know, like went and like plastered a billboard one night. Um, and early on, like they don't trust you because you're media and you have a microphone and they don't want to be recorded. Uh, but then by the end of the week, like you're just around so much that you almost become a part of the group in an interesting way. Um, it's like a much more like anthropological experience than, than like, you know, helicopter reporting or, or parachute reporting. That's the phrase I was looking for, where you just sort of parachute into something and then get out of there. Um, and I felt like that happened on the bus too. You know, I think like some people were like skeptical to talk to me on day one, but by the end of the week, you're just around so much that you almost become a part of their story as well. Like people were really excited to be talking into the microphone. Like they've started to make games and like they would say silly things into the mic and it became kind of fun. And, um, and, you know, as like a reporter, you have to like know where to like draw the boundaries and like when you shouldn't be talking to people and in what instances you should put the microphone away and when you should have the microphone out. Um, and that's just like a, that's like a constant game of like walking the line, like what feels right, what feels funny. And the minute it starts to feel funny, you're just like I should probably walk away from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How often were you, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, on the clock? So it's a 24 hour experience. Uh, every day. How many hours were you working? How many hours did you have the microphone out? And how many hours were you just taking a break? Yeah, I think it was like, I mean, uh, those first few days in particular, I don't, I think I slept maybe four or five hours a night um, and was, and was out. And if I wasn't like on mic trying to record people, cause they were staying up late and I wanted scenes of them being up late. I was back in the hotel room working, trying to get the tape uploaded and organized you know, things are just so fresh in your memory right then. And it's so worth it to write things down while it's fresh. It's so worth it to organize things for your future self when like, you know, uh, this was in July and August. I didn't want October Eric to have to go back and try to remember things that, that like August Eric knew right then. So you just like you take a bunch of notes, you organize things for your future self um, and you just put in the work right then and have like one really hard week where you don't sleep a whole lot. And it'll make your life a lot easier in the long run. That's sort of how I operate when I'm reporting in the field. How did you feel when you, I'm assuming, flew back and did not take the bus back from New Orleans to New York? Did you feel like, okay, I've got everything I need? Did you feel like this is exactly what I was hoping it would be? Did you feel like I have a pretty good idea of where this is all going to go and how it's all going to fit into a story? Or was there still just so much uh, left open at that point? This was the first, literally the first story I've ever done where I flew home and was like, I have a story. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Almost always I'm like leaving the field reporting. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's something here or there's nothing here. I'm, I'm so rarely am I certain that a thing's going to work. But this was the first story where I was just like, oh, this is going to be fine. Uh, like the beats are here. The holes that exist, I know how to fill them. Uh and and I have the time to do it. That's also a big thing. It's like I have the time to go back in and fill those holes. Yeah. Is that I, a gimlet decision that that you is is 
again, I'm just doing the quick math, is about three and a half to four months. Is that the usual amount of time that you'll receive for about two and a half hours worth of ultimate content? It really, I mean, it, uh, I mean, it really depends. You know, there's some shows that get like that. They'll, they'll put out five or six episodes a year and they're each about 30 or 40 minutes. And it's just like the whole year is five or six episodes. Um, but they're really intense stories and they're really like, they take a long time to find and take a long time to develop and to write. There's shows that just require that amount of time. And there's other shows where they'll come up with a story on Monday and it's out on Wednesday. Um, and it still manages to be like 20 to 30 minutes long. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, it's it's a really it's really a case by case basis. Gimlet is like a very good place in that we have the luxury of time on most stuff. And like with this kind of project, I knew going in, I'm, it's not going to have to happen until the end of the year. Um, so we'll have a little bit of time to mess around. Yeah, that is a relief. And at the same time, I think you were just talking about the difference between August Eric and October Eric, and I could understand where you could almost delude yourself into thinking that you could take your foot off the gas a little bit in September, in October, and then suddenly get back in early November and wonder, wait, what is all this audio that I have and that I have to go through? So I could see where you still have to be persistent, even as you feel like you have a lot of time. And it's not even just because of the like logistics of the story. It's also like, I am like a real self doubter. And like, as soon as I spend like a little too long in a story, I start to wonder if it's interesting anymore. And you start to Mm -hmm. doubt like, why, like, why am I even doing this? Like, why, why did I go out and do this in the field? Like, do, is anybody going to care about this crazy thing? Um, have I just deluded myself into thinking I should be doing this for a living? Like I really, and it descends really quickly (laughs) from there. So I feel like, like so much of like the creative process is just momentum. Like you just keep the momentum moving. Um, because as soon as the train slows down for me, and I think for a lot of other people, as soon as the train slows down, it's really hard to get it moving again and convince yourself that like this is a train that needs to keep driving. So like I'm I'm like a big fan of like if you're on something, just like keep pounding at it um, for your own sake. Otherwise, like you'll start to, you'll start to lose interest. And you definitely do not want that to happen. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Eric Mennel, Jack of all trades for Gimlet Media. Eric, I like to use this final section of the podcast as an advice section for younger journalists. And typically, we we have a lot of TV journalists on here, be they reporters, photographers, and uh, because typically it's a more TV-related audience. But I think it's a really interesting look, or I think having you here is a chance to get a really interesting look at the life of a podcast producer and what your workflow is like, what your workday is like, and how you got to the point where you're at and what the aspirations typically are for someone in your shoes. So those are a lot of things to throw at you. I guess we'll Mm -hmm. start with uh, just your background in journalism and how you came to this point. Yeah, uh, I graduated with a degree in creative writing, which doesn't technically mean much, uh, from Florida State University. Um, And it was a great program. I loved the school itself, but uh, creative writing is like a hard thing to get a job in. so when I graduated, I, I did an internship at the local NPR station in Tampa, Florida, WUSF, where I sort of cut my teeth initially. Um, and then I got an internship at this uh, radio show called This American Life, uh, which is based in New York now. 
And um, and from there, it's you know I've, I've I've sort of just been like a public radio nomad. I like <laughs> once I was done at, at at this American Life, I I went to a show in Virginia called Backstory with the American History Guys, and then I was in Durham, North Carolina, at the NPR station doing local news. Um, so it's a real mixed bag of like doing both like daily local news and then also national feature style reporting, and um, and that's that's sort of like where I developed my like personal tastes of, of like, I'm a, I'm a big believer in local journalism. And, uh, and I think most particularly good national stories are just like local stories <laughs> that mm. people are paying now paying attention to. Um, and so, so I, I, that's sort of where I like cut my teeth initially, um, was like, uh, an even handed interest in both local journalism and then also like long form nonfiction. And then how did you get to Gimlet? And so Gimlet, I had uh, I had worked with Alex Bloomberg a little bit at This American Life, and uh, and when I was in Durham, I had helped some friends start up a true crime podcast called Criminal, and uh, and I had, that's a great I, podcast by the way that that's that's still going very strong as well. Yeah, yeah, Phoebe Judge and Lauren Sporer uh, were the other co creators, and they have another producer now, Nadia Wilson, and they're they're awesome. They're just like that show. They managed to find some of the craziest craziest stories like just the craziest characters uh all over the country i think like more than any other true crime podcast they're like have like the most diverse like series of voices on that show and like just insane level of storytelling like i really uh, i can say this as someone who doesn't work with them anymore <laughs> i am a big fan um yeah. yeah so i so i'd worked with alex bloomberg a little bit and when he was starting this company he was uh yeah just looking for help launching his first few shows and um I was young and I think I was like pretty cheap and like willing to move and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I was eager. I was eager. So I think, um, so he gave me a call one night and, uh, and I interviewed for, for a show up here and yeah, made the move back to New York. I still think the, uh, the first season of startup is such a groundbreaking and clever way to not just, uh, produce a podcast, but to build a company which yeah. uh, really did build a lot of steam for Gimlet and help it get off the ground. Um, so talk about, uh, obviously we've, we've spent most of the podcast talking about startup bus. Talk about your other uh, hats that you wear for Gimlet and kind of what a typical week or month looks like. Yeah. I was at Gimlet pretty early. The company has been around for about three years now, a little longer than three years. And, uh, and I was there, I was like the first seven or eight employees or so we're up to like 107 employees now. So it's like a very different place than when I started. And then over the course of three years, my job has changed a lot. Um, I helped, I came in initially helping to produce this show called mystery show. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I, I produced a, a sort of mini season with startup with that of startup with Alex, um, where we revisited Gimlet a little bit, um, I was the senior producer slash showrunner for a show called Twice Removed, which is a family history show. Um, and now I'm sort of like a floating gun for hire. You know, I, <laughs> I kind of like hop around Gimlet and, and I've edited a, a show or two and I've, I've hosted Startup now. I think it looks like I'm going to be doing a little more work with Startup for the first part of this year. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the thing about Gimlet as a startup itself is just like, they say the only thing that's constant is change. And, um, you know, I week to week, things change really quickly for me there. Um, I think because I've been there long enough, I kind of have a little bit of institutional knowledge and I'm able to hop between shows, which is nice. Uh, but it, yeah, but in terms of the hats themselves, I mean, 
this is something I really learned from working at This American Life, which was, you know, there the producers do everything. They mix the shows, they do the research, they record, they write, they work with outside producers. You really have to be like a five-tool producer to, to work there. And um, and so that's sort of what I've tried to do over my career. And now, again, like, I think because of like that foundation, I'm able to just kind of like hop around. I'm like the thumb you stick in the leaky canoe, you know, like you <laughs> plot me in and hopefully keep from capsizing. That's a beautiful image. Uh, we, I, I think so many people, you know, podcasts are constantly viewed as the next big thing in media. And I think more and more people want to be a part of that. But from the outside, oftentimes it, I think podcasting brings the usual questions that the radio side often brings. Can I make a living at it? Can I get the time to really do what I want? And can I do impactful reporting that will be seen uh, or heard rather nationwide and even globally. Mm -hmm. I would think that Gimlet gives you the opportunity to do the last of those things and, and start up especially and start up bus now, you know, with your experience with that. Um, but talk about just, you know, you're a relatively young journalist still and a, and a young storyteller. You're working at what I think is regarded as one of the top podcasting uh, groups around even though it's still as young as it is i mean what you know do you feel like you're at a real strong point in your career yeah i feel i mean like uh i was thinking about this the other day one of my when i when i first left this american life i was uh interviewing for a job at uh at the mothership at npr hmm. and one of the editors there asked me where do you want to be in five years and i and I said, well, I guess I guess I just want to like be producing a national show. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I think I was 21. <laughs> and so I was like, I just want to be like producing a national show. Um, and that was like seven years ago now. Um, and and I, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of there. Uh, I mean, like the thing about Gimlet is it like uh, it's a really competitive place. But like the thing that people are competitive about is like who can like out creative the other people <laughs> you know it's like who can just like come up with like the next different way to do something and like that is like so exciting that's like a hard thing to find anywhere is a place that is like not not just like uh okay with creativity even but like encouraging it like actively encouraging people to do that so I mean like yeah I feel like I'm in a pretty good spot right now um I've like had a I've been lucky to have like a good foundation in terms of the stuff I've learned. And now I feel like there's a place that will like, let me use it. It's a, That's it's a real luxury. Yeah. What would your advice be for students in college, people at, at their kind of first stop along the way about how to really build yourself up as a podcast producer and recorder or reporter rather? Um, just make stuff, you know, just like keep making stuff. If, even if only like your parents are listening or your friends, like, I had a quote unquote podcast when I graduated school and had like sent out 75 job applications and heard nothing <laughs> back. I had a quote unquote podcast that like, I think six people were downloading, but it was like, uh, in doing that, like I decided I wanted to like go cover the, I don't know if you remember this, the John Stewart and Stephen Colbert rally to restore sanity and or fear back in 2000, 2010, I think it was. Um, yeah, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to quote unquote cover that for my podcast. It's not like I have a job keeping me from doing this. So, <laughs> so I went and recorded, and then I wound up getting the interview for the internship at This American Life. And I remember talking in the interview about being at the rally um, and telling the stories of some of the people I met doing that. 
And like ultimately that answer was the thing uh, I, I wound up talking to the person who hired me was like the thing that like made them feel like I knew what was interesting and I knew how to chase a story. Like even if I was young and it was like kind of silly and the story wasn't going to work, it was just like, oh, the instincts were there. And like that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't just been like making stuff on my own, even if no one's going to listen to it. Like, like even when you're at a job, like no one's going to listen to your stuff for a while. It takes a really long time to make something good enough people want to listen to. So I think like you just keep making it um, and eventually like you'll find the audience you want. But that, that's like the number one thing. Just get into the habit of making stuff. When I was young, I every summer made an annual NFL preview magazine that went to an audience of one uh-huh and but it was 150 pages and i did this in in my junior year of high school when there were way more fun opportunities at my fingertips so but i remember that because i i never was looking to go into print i wound up going into broadcast and that's what i'm doing now but having that foundation helped when it came time to start writing web stories mm-hmm. for my pieces, when mm-hmm. it came time to start doing a blog, when it came time to ultimately write a book. And yeah. all of those little kernels, I think, along the way, help you build up that skill set. And I think your story is such a great one about just doing things and the skills you pick up along the way will ultimately make a difference and will ultimately be your foundation. So that's a really great piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think moving ahead in your career, there's going to be a few moments that are just like sheer luck and like, like, breaks are kind of a real thing. But like, you've got to be able to like, have the intuition to like, take advantage of those things when they show up. And like, that just comes from doing the work, I think, for sure. All right. Well, Eric, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? I, I, I mean, I, when you told me you made a sports magazine, I was just curious who your team was growing up. That's the thing I was going <laughs> Ah, great question. Yes, I was a New York Jets fan, which uh, mm-hmm. they were always the underdogs, and uh, it didn't affect my predictions at all, but uh, definitely made for some tough rooting during those childhood years, and still as an adult. Well, I feel like as journalists, we love a good underdog story, as it, I mean... It makes sense that you'd be a Jets fan. (laughs) Good stuff. All right. Great talking with you, Eric Mennel. Thanks so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. The Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.